Let's pray together as we prepare to come before the Lord's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift You've given us of Your Word. Lord, You speak to us. You've not left us in silence. You've not left us to question who You are and what You are like. You've revealed Yourself to us in the pages of Your Word. And we thank You for that gift. We pray that right now You would open our hearts to Your Word and open Your Word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. <clears throat> Hear now the Lord's word to us. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. Any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself, and likewise everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And they went down with Pura his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. He divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set watch. And they blew the trumpets, they smashed the jars that were in their hands. 
And then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars, and they held in their left hands the torches, and in the right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Melholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out, from, called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Well, if you're uh, just visiting us for the first time, we're in the middle of going through a series on the book of Judges this summer. And one of the things that we keep coming back to, this overall theme in the book of Judges, is that the greatness of God's grace is seen most clearly in the depths to which it reaches. And we see time and again in the book of Judges, we see God's people falling away from Him, going their own way, and God mercifully reaching out to them. Um, We're picking up today in the middle of the story of Gideon. There's several chapters here in the middle of Judges about Gideon. I wish we had time to talk more about him. We're going to look at this one glimpse of his life. But Gideon, uh, is, he's a complex character. We see both the good and the bad of Gideon um, over the course of these few chapters. But we're going to look at this one story when Gideon engages the enemy in battle, when God raises him up to deliver his people. And we're going to look at just two things this morning. And here they are. We're going to look at the fact that your life is for God's glory and not your own. Your life is for God's glory and not your own. And God allows weakness in your life to help you learn that lesson. Our lives are for God's glory, not our own. God brings weakness into our life to actually help us learn that lesson. Now, look in the first half of this. God's, our life is about God's glory and not our own. If you're familiar with the story of Gideon in the chapters preceding this, you know that Gideon, when God approaches him and tells him that he's going to raise him up to deliver his people, that Gideon continually doubts. He's a man racked by fear. And he needs reassurance after reassurance from God that God's really going to do this work in his life. And this story right here, we have Gideon coming to accept what God's called him to do. We see him on the, the eve of this battle. The armies are assembled, and they're getting ready for battle, and Gideon's getting ready to lead him. And God gives him what surely must have been disheartening news on the eve of this battle. In verse 2, the Lord says to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, seeing my own hand has saved me. Uh, No one on the eve of battle thinks, We just have too many men. The odds are too good. They're too much leaning towards our favor. We're going to have to do something about that. And yet, that's exactly what God does for Gideon. He says, this battle is about my glory, not your own. And he says, I can't trust you and the people to win the battle this way. Because you're going to take credit for it yourself. So we're going to have to do something about that. God, here at the very beginning, is concerned about his glory. And he's concerned that the people don't take this glory for themselves. Now, that might bring up some objections for you. I mean, isn't it, isn't it sort of conceited for God to be concerned about his own glory? Isn't it sort of um, petty and small-minded? I mean, you know what it's like when you're around people who are very much concerned for their own glory, when they're concerned for their own name and their own praise. They're overbearing. They're conceited. We can see through uh, the charade they're trying to portray for us, yet 
Is that the way we should, we should look at God? What does it mean when God says that he is concerned about his own glory? Well, let me just offer one thought. One of the reasons that that strikes us is so inappropriate with the people around us is because we know they don't deserve it. They think they're the center of the universe, and sometimes maybe we fall into this, but your family and your friends know that you're not, right? It feels out of joint because it's just not true because we don't deserve it. But think about God. I'm going to read a couple verses from Judges chapter 6 just to set the context for this. This is Judges 6, 8 through 10. Before this whole incident of this battle, God sends a prophet to the people um, to indict them. Judges 6, 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, who drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. The context for God's people is always the fact that it is God who goes before them and has delivered them who's worked these mighty wonders on their behalf. And he says, look, you are my people. I brought you out of Egypt. I am the one who's taking care of you. And for God to be concerned for his own glory is appropriate because he deserves it. He is the one who's worked this in their lives. And because he is the one who has created our universe. All things are in his hands. God is the one person in the universe for whom it is appropriate to say, I deserve glory. I deserve to be worshipped. I deserve to be magnified. Now that creates a problem in our, in our lives, though, uh, because God wants the glory not only in the life of the Israelites in this, in this story, but we deal with the same God. We deal with the same one who's revealed to us here in the pages of Scripture. And the problem is that we want glory for ourselves. Um, God wants glory, but we want to steal it from Him. We're committed to our own glory. Well, maybe, maybe you, you don't think it's quite that bad. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Do you remember the SAT? Some of you are getting ready to prepare for this. Some of our students, um, some of you are in college looking back back at it, and some of us, it's been many, many years since we took the SAT. How many of you still remember what you got on your SAT, even though for some of it's been decades? How many of you still remember what your GPA was in school? Why do we care? Now, I understand if you have kids who are still in school, we're telling them we care. We do care. Why? <laughs> Decades later, why, why do we care? Why do we remember our SAT score? Why do we remember every good grade that we made? Why do we remember that class we barely passed? Um, okay, here's some blatantly stereotypical examples. I'll apologize ahead of time, but some of them might fit. Men. Why is it that you have the innate ability to turn everything that you do into a competition? It doesn't matter if you just pick up a basketball and you're shooting hoops with a couple friends. Suddenly it becomes an all-out game and your very pride is at stake and who wins this. Why is it that you can be competitive playing board games? Um, Why does winning mean so much to you? Girls, why are you so elated when a guy walks by and notices you and takes a second look. Why does it mean so much when you receive that compliment? Maybe from some, some of the women in our church. Why, when somebody comes over to your home for dinner, why does everything have to be perfect? 
Why is there such distress when it's not? Why is it that you feel like you have to serve grilled salmon and asparagus and there's no way you could ever serve a guest spaghetti? Why? What does that say about finding our glory? For any of us, why is it that we so long for others to recognize the importance of our career, to be impressed with our work? Uh, As you've heard, we just got back from Bay St. Louis, and I went down there with a group of students back in March, and one day, a couple of us are working on some bunkhouses where volunteers were going to stay. So I come around the corner of the bunkhouse, and there's Peter, one of the guys on our trip, and he's building some stairs that go up into the bunkhouse, and there he is, bending nails one after the other. I came up and said, Peter, step aside. Let me show you how to drive a nail. Peter steps aside, I pull out a nail, and I drive that nail perfectly. And I sort of smugly smile at Peter. And we start working together, and I proceed to bend the next five or six nails. And it's so bad that the guy who's from Lanyap, who's kind of their contractor, who's helping all the work groups, he comes around the corner, and we both sort of sheepishly look at Conrad and say, could you show, could you show us how to drive a nail? Uh, why? Why did, it, why did even driving a nail have to be a competition? Why did my whole sense of self-worth have, was, why was it resting on my ability not to bend a nail? I would love to tell you that I fully absorbed that lesson. But here we were last week, down in Bay St. Louis, four months later, Sarah Peterson, a couple other people, putting up drywall in a bathroom, having trouble with a couple of the drywall screws. Step aside, Sarah. Let me show you how it's done. I get a couple of them in. We come to one that she was not able to drive in quite fully. And the screwdriver wasn't working, so I said, step aside. And I picked up a hammer, and I was going to knock it in the rest of the way. I missed the nail and put a hole that big in the drywall. (laughs) David, I apologize. That was me. Um, Why is it that so much rests on our ability to perform? Now, for you, it might not be driving nails, but you know what it is for you. Why Why is so much of our weight on our ability to find glory, to find approval, to find praise from the people around us. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I have ongoing daydreams in which people are in great distress and I somehow come in to save the day. I really do. Now, you might not have daydreams like that, but, but what, is your, what is your daydream? You know, another way of saying all of this, we're people who seek glory. We're people who seek to be the center of our story. We're people who seek to be the center of all that happens around us, to carry the weight, to be the one who is glorified. How are you seeking glory for yourself? Technology has given us a few more ways to do this. I've seen this with my students and with other folks. For those of us that own iPods, okay, iPods, little music player, well, what will happen when you're sitting around with, at least with students, and you've got your iPods, somebody will say, let me see your iPod and see what kind of music you have on it. And suddenly, you're thinking, is my music cool enough for these people? Like, what are they going to think when they see that I still have Barry Manilow on there? Like, what? how are they going to evaluate me? Or, uh, for some of us, it's our digital cameras. We keep all our favorite pictures on our digital camera, and we swap them around and say, look at these pictures. But I promise you that you've gone through and deleted every picture on there that's taken from just the wrong angle, right? All your friends look like they really do, but only the best pictures of you are on there, right? We're people that are very much not only seeking this glory, but we're trying to project it to the people around us. We're screaming out all the time. 
I matter, I'm important, pay attention to me, I deserve glory. But this story reminds us that our lives are not about our own glory, but they're about the glory of God. And the second thing it shows us is that God allows weakness in our life to help teach us that lesson. And he shows us that in, in four ways. First, in the story, we see that God graphically illustrates our weakness. This is in verses 2 through 8. Again, on the eve of battle, the last thing you do is send away your men. But that's exactly what God does with Gideon. And he goes through this two-phase uh, process of taking away the men from the army. Step one, he says, okay, I want you to go tell the army, everyone who's afraid, go home. And 22,000 people leave. That's two-thirds of the army. 10,000 people are left. Gideon's thinking, it's getting a little tight. God says, there's still too many people. So he takes them down to the river and has them drink, and God uses this process to whittle it down further from 10,000 people to 300. What would you be thinking if you were Gideon? We are doomed. <laughs> goes out of its way to talk about as they look down into the valley that, uh, that the enemy is spread out in front of them like the sand on the seashore, unable to be counted. And Gideon's thinking, you're giving me 300 men. But I think what's interesting about this is that God is not making the people of Israel weak. Okay, back in verse 2, he says, it's clear that he's the one who's going to give the enemy into his hand. But he says, we're going to do it in my way. He's not making the people weak. He's showing them that they already are weak. He's showing them that they already are in need of, a, of rescue, in need of a savior. He's showing them that they already cannot handle their own lives. So he illustrates our weakness. Second thing, he graciously meets us in our weakness. Verses 9 through 15. Amazingly, time and again in the story of Gideon, Gideon doubts. He's afraid. And God continues to be patient with him. And he says, I'm going to give this army into your hands, but if you're still scared, if you're still having trouble, then take your servant, sneak down into the camp, and listen to what they say. And he goes down, and he overhears this conversation between two soldiers about a dream that one of them had. And the end of the dream, this soldier, this enemy soldier says, this is Gideon, and they're coming to destroy us. Gideon goes back up to engage his own people to lead them, because God has been gracious to meet him in his weakness. God, time and again, has shown him that he's faithful, but he says, if you're still afraid, then I'm still going to be patient with you, and I'm still going to assure you, and I'm still going to encourage you. Third thing, we see that God glorifies himself through our weakness. Again, this is in verses 15 through 23. What happens? Well, God throws the army into confusion. And they begin to destroy themselves. God shows Gideon graphically that he is not the one winning the battle, that God himself is. But then the last thing, he frees us through our weakness. In the middle of overwhelming odds, God shows the people of Israel, and he shows us who is their real hope, who is their real strength. He shows them that it's not in their ability to wield the sword, it's not in their ability to lead an army, that God is the one who holds all things in his hands. We see that God is the one who gets the glory. Now, it's interesting for Gideon that as he learns this, it doesn't send him into despair. In fact, it sends him instead into hope. He doesn't end up depressed. He ends up actually freed by his weakness. If you look back in verse 9, 
God had told him to arise and go down against the camp. That God was going to give it into his hands. He's afraid. He has trouble listening. He has to be encouraged again. But then listen to Gideon in verse 15. He comes back. He speaks to the army. And he says, arise. The Lord has given this into our hand. He is someone who has been convinced. He's someone who's been met in the middle of his weakness. And then what I think is probably the most amazing picture in the whole story. Look in verse 21, 20 and 21. And see the picture of Gideon and his men as they go into this battle. Again, 300 men standing in the middle of an army that can't be numbered. And what do they do? Well, in their left hands, they hold up the torches. And in their right hands, they hold up their trumpets and blow them. And what are they not holding? Everyone knows if you're going to go into a battle, the one thing you desperately need is a sword. And they go into battle with a, with a torch in one hand and a trumpet in the other, and they watch God win a victory for them. In verse 21, again, a beautiful picture. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. For Gideon and for his men, the reality of their weakness wasn't a trap. It wasn't a curse. It was actually the road for them to real freedom, to actually trusting this God in whose hands they had to rest. This was good news for Gideon. It was good news for him that his life was about God's glory and not his own. And it was good news for Gideon that God allowed weakness into his life to show him that. And it's good news for us. A couple suggestions for us. Repent of your own thirst for glory. All those ways that you are seeking to be the center of the story. All those ways that you are clamoring for your attention, for worth, for glory in the sight of others. Only God can bear the weight of being the center of your story. Only God can bear the weight of actually receiving glory. So as you find yourself seeking glory in other things, do what the Bible says to do. Turn around. Repent. Go the other direction. And trust Jesus again to meet you in your need. And the second thing is embrace your weakness. Instead of cursing God for the hardships and the weaknesses that He allows in your life, thank Him. Trust Him in the middle of that. Lean on Jesus, not on your own strength. Here's the way Paul put it the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Rest in Jesus. The one who was strong and yet became weak on our behalf. So that we who are weak might be made strong in Him. Let's pray.